free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to liven up your bedroom is even better. Go to adamandeve.com and use the Thousand Movie Project podcast coupon code TMPP to get 50% off of your purchase. Not only that, enter offer code TMPP at checkout and get six free spicy movies. And that's what we're all about here on Thousand Movie Project podcast, cinema. Also, DVDs are just fun. They're vintage now. It's like masturbating to a telegram. Plus, plus, free shipping on the whole thing. Go to adamandeve.com, select the lube, the harness, the dildo of your choice, and enter the offer code TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, for 50% off. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I often have conversations in my head with people who aren't immediately around. Like, I imagine these witty exchanges of dialogue. Mostly, I feel like I'm practicing. Practicing conversation. Because I'm always telling myself, you know, someday someone's going to want to talk to me, and I'm going to need to be ready for that. Because as of now, I feel grievously unprepared. And it seems to me so counterintuitive that I'm not good at conversation, because... Judging from this podcast and the thousands of jittery chicken scratch pages strewn around my apartment, it does seem that I have a lot to say. What ends up happening, though, is I get into conversation with somebody and I'm asking them a bunch of questions about themselves. And that works very well to sort of get friendly with somebody, get to know them. But at a certain point, that person will turn it around and they'll ask me questions about myself. But I never know if they're suddenly asking me these questions about myself because they are suddenly self-conscious to find that they've been talking for so long, or is it because they're genuinely interested? Which normally should not be a problem. My attitude ought to be, this person is asking me a question, I don't feel like I'm being violated by that question, so let me just answer it. But then I often feel like I'm dragging someone into a sand trap when they ask me a question because unless it's a very clear yes-no answer that they're asking me for, or a simple fact, like what do you have for dinner, what kind of car do you drive, every answer I give seems inevitably to digress from the question, explore two or three tangential topics, only to circle back and answer the question in like the least interesting way possible. And I don't want to subject somebody to that kind of answer if they're only asking me their question out of courtesy. Like if they're actually interested in my very long answer, like if they're, if they're, you know, casing my psyche because they plan to steal my identity or my sofa or my semen, then sure, I can see why they might be interested to know all these little tangential details. There's a guy I know who doesn't sleep very much and he reads a lot. And he's come up on the podcast a few times uh, and in various posts that I've written on thousandmovieproject.com. His name is Steve Donahue and he's a book critic. He's one of the very few people who reviews books full time for a number of different outlets. Steve reads for about 10 hours a day, at a rate of 130-odd pages an hour. Plus, he reads a good smattering of comic books and periodicals. He lurks around on Reddit. He watches an ungodly amount of YouTube. And that is how we met, incidentally, is, is via YouTube. Or the, or the bookish corner of YouTube, more specifically, a place called BookTube, where people make videos about books in pretty much the same fashion as techies do their tech stuff, fashion people do their fashion stuff, movie people do their movie stuff. BookTube has people doing hauls and unboxings and reviews. It's a friendly, fairly wholesome atmosphere, and Steve, fittingly enough, is a fairly friendly and wholesome guy, for the most part. Steve has made more videos than any other BookTuber, and might in fact be close to having made more videos than any other YouTuber. As a full-time book critic, he gets 
piles of books in the mail every day, copies in various stages of completion, from blank-covered, uncorrected typescripts to galley copies to completed copies, the, the hardbacks that you'll see in the bookstore. And most of his videos are just of that, just Steve opening his mail. Which is interesting just in its own right if you're a bookish person because he's holding up early editions of titles that, in some cases, won't be available for five or six months. So Steve's mail halls basically comprise a video catalog of books to come. But over the course of three or four thousand videos, Steve has cultivated relationships with his viewers. There are inside jokes, there are threads of interest that run an arc of, you know, 10 or 13 videos where, for instance, he's reading a pile of murder mysteries, or a certain pile of Regency romances, or he's feeding a random appetite for vintage Justice League comics. So now, every video for two or three weeks will have a reference to Superboy or Wonder Woman or some Regency series. The slew of books that he's getting about President Trump's administration catapult him into political rants, but so will the latest Kennedy biography, or the latest book about the Borgias, or anything having to do with ancient Rome. And lately, there is hardly a topic that Steve addresses that does not yield to a five or six minute digression about the danger of grizzly bears. But Steve's videography, if that's the right word, has expanded to include not just mail halls, but halls from his favorite bookstore, The Brattle in Boston, wherein he's invariably holding up a book that he's already read, and about which he has five to ten minutes worth of opining and personal history. When doing a Q&A one time, somebody asked him what was the weirdest thing he ever found in a used book. The strangest thing I ever found in a used book, said Steve, was a picture of me. And I have to say, it might seem, at first glance, like this is the most boring channel in the world. Steve's camera never moves. He, he does not edit anything. He doesn't know how to superimpose an image on the screen. He doesn't know how to tinker with the audio. He will routinely post 90 minutes worth of videos that he thought he was filming horizontally, but they're actually vertical. <laughs> and he gets so exasperated when addressing the fact that he isn't as versatile with this technology as everybody else is. He'll be talking about a book that he doesn't have in the room with him, and then his expression will change. And he'll say, well, I'd like to put a picture of the book on the screen right now, and then his hand will start to hover in the empty space beside his head, and he'll say, right here. I'd put it right here. But I don't know how to do that. And YouTube doesn't seem to want to allow me to do that, so you'll just have to imagine what I'm talking about. You'll have to conjure in your imagination a cover of a book, a cover that I do not know how to put here on the screen, and he'll go on and on. <laughs> in his four years on YouTube, Steve has amassed a following of nearly 10,000 subscribers. He's made over 3,000 videos, and I've watched or listened to at least 90% of those videos. Steve's ceaseless nattering is the company that I take with me on my hour-long commute to and from work. It's what I listen to when I'm cooking, uh, while I'm speeding through a grocery run, especially now during the quarantine because I'm going on these long evening walks, and Steve is posting an average of 90 minutes of videos on YouTube every single day. He's opening mail, he's doing read-alongs, he's giving bite-sized reviews of things. But because I spend more time in the company of this guy's voice than I do in probably the company of my conscience, he is the person with whom I'm having so many of those laboriously rehearsed internal conversations. Because I'll be, I'll be walking around the neighborhood and I'll be listening to one of his videos and I'll think, well, you say, you say this now, but a few weeks ago you were pointing out, yada yada yada. Steve and I generally correspond via email, but every now and then we manage a video call. And that's what today's bonus episode is going to be a topic-jumping conversation via Zoom that isn't grounded in anything at all. And as somebody whose own conversation feels shapeless and runny, I take comfort in talking with someone like Steve, whose conversation plays to that very same tune, and reminds me that while he can surely stay on topic as well as anybody else, conversation is just as fun, and maybe more so, when you're talking with somebody who's just as keen to digress and go wherever the ebbs and flows of conversation take us.
couple of days after this conversation, we recorded a three-hour conversation, which I will be posting next week. Anyway, here it is, my chat last week with Steve Donahue. Do you want to introduce me to your podcast audience? Do they even know? I mean, I by can. now, I they're, all, they're all saying to themselves, this guy, whoever this weird old guy is, he is pretty good at nattering, but <laughs> you still might want to, I don't know the, the etiquette of podcasts. Well, so it is already recording, and again, I'm going to go through this with a, with a comb. And uh, if there's anything you want me to omit, just let me know. That's good. Um, I think on your... There won't be anything that I want. That you want to omit? There won't be anything that I want you to omit. I'd like you to omit your beard. But there won't be anything (laughs) I said that I want you to omit. I'll be fine. (laughs) Okay. I love talking. (laughs) Um, I just read a great, there's a great true crime story in the new Vanity Fair. Oh, my. So good. It's just so good. Does everything the true crime should do right. <laughs> is this is this the issue of Vanity Fair that also uh, boasts on the cover of some Dune coverage? Yes. Yeah, this is the okay. one that had, I mean, they leak online, so those pictures don't mean as much as they did 20 years ago. Right. But yeah, this has leaked set footage from the Villeneuve 2 movie adaptation of Dune. Uh, do you and think it, the, do you think it's doomed or do you think it'll, it'll... Yeah, I think it's doomed. Of course I do. Yeah, I think it's Really? Doomed. Yeah, yeah, I think it's doomed. Yeah, the director said there's no way to film this in one movie. So you get a legion of fans, you get a legion of admirers, and you get the plum job of filming a movie version of Dune. And how do you do it? By announcing in declarative sentences your own incompetence. There's no way to film this in one in one movie. Sorry, absolute nonsense, absolute nonsense. And it proves it it, damn it, it calling cards right away. You don't know what you're doing, and you don't know the mo- the book at all. Because you were already announcing that it's impossible to film it in one movie. That was, that was bad news to begin with. But then I read the article in this Vanity Fair. And it turns out that Liet Kynes, a fairly major character in the first half of the book, uh, has been race and gender swapped. The black woman from Rogue One, I think, is playing Liet Kynes in this movie of Dune. And she's quoted in the article as saying, well, why can't a woman play Leanne Kynes? And I wanted to say, ah, but it's a rhetorical question. Of course. And, and it drives me crazy because the director was saying, well, there aren't enough women in this cast, and I'm very pro-women. Do you often say that? Do you often say things like that? I'm, often, I'm very pro-women. I'm not against women. I'm not anti-women. I'm pro-women. <laughs> Which is such a stupid, drooling lie. All he means by that is that he's afraid of being ratioed on social media. That's all. It's fear. That's all it is. It's just fear. It comes off every forum. I'm pro-women. I'm very pro. I'm not anti-women. I'm very pro-women. <laughs> so you're gonna have you're gonna you're gonna gender swap the character of Liet Kynes, who is the father of Chinese. And if you're making that kind of decision, if you're making a decision about casting of a very major Hollywood adaptation of one of the greatest science fiction novels ever written, and you're making that decision for current year political reasons, then your movie's doomed. <laughs> Absolutely doomed. Not to mention the fact that the Dune movie, a two-part Dune movie with each movie three hours long is for Dune fans. Who's yeah. the number one group of people who are going to object to race swapping and gender swapping? From what is called in the Vanity Fair article, the source material. Who are the people who are going to object to that? The very people you're aiming for. The very people you're expecting to go two or three times each. The very people you're expecting to make this your Lord of the Rings. They're the ones that you need. And they're the only ones who will be bothered by this kind of decision. 
<laughs> not to mention the absolute i mean i don't know how many of your podcast listeners have read to and are familiar with it but the absolute insanity of characterizing the source material the actual 1965 novel doom as being woman poor <laughs> i don't even i don't even know what to make of that every single nodule of the plot revolves around women, or many women <laughs> i don't i don't get that at all we will live to see you mark my words we will live to see a full screen hollywood version of moby dick with ahab as a woman we will live to see it and we will get long groveling vanity fair articles about how there were two female whaling captains in the 19th century so so <laughs> and of course you can't you couldn't no matter who you are you could be steven spielberg you couldn't film a faithful version of moby dick in 2020 because there are no female characters at all and we are surrounded on all sides by puritan censors that we have just allowed to be there it's not like you are you're a normal beer brewer in 16th century new england and you don't have a say in whether or not you live in a theocracy back then you had no say in the fact that the puritan divines ruled your world and if you weren't at mass if you didn't go to church they could write you up they could find you they could put you in the stocks for children to throw to throw rocks at and you knew that they had the ultimate legal coercive power to enforce their censorship to enforce their narrow censoring view of what is right and what is wrong behavior but you're not that beer brewer none of us are we put these people there voluntarily <laughs> we, we adhere to them and grovel to them and kowtow to them voluntarily what's the worst they can do drag us on twitter that's the worst they can do <laughs> they can drag us on twitter and yet we give them all the authority in the world uh, well i need a sensitivity reader maybe more than one i've seen new authors on bookstagram and on twitter working on their manuscript talking about their publicist saying they're so happy to get this deal and now the book is in the works and i need a sensitivity reader maybe more than one i'm willing to pay they're on there on twitter saying i'm willing to pay you name your rates and it's as i mentioned 17 or 18 spittle flecked minutes ago as, as i mentioned <laughs> these things only get stronger you have to attack them and weaken them and undermine them and uproot them and get rid of them you can't even turn a blind eye to them they only get stronger unless you attack them if you don't attack them they just grow and we're not just refraining from attacking them in 2020 in america i haven't gone the that vanity fair thing but i i have adopted your habit um and i've tried to maintain it of sort of getting a bunch of periodicals and then leaving them for like sunday as you said, that, that frenetic consumption of news over the course of the week, just, it does nothing. And my dad is kind of panicking about this, uh, about the pandemic, and he reads widely. He reads everything. And so he sends me every doomsaying article that says the economy is going to yeah. collapse, unemployment is going to be 20%. And after a certain point, it's like, how many times do you need this shoved back in your face? Right. Just Right. Look away from the news. However, I, I was mentioning this on the blog a while ago that a couple of years ago with um, I was in some. Okay, here's a passage where I said some garbled stuff about a research project I had once had to work on. And just to simplify things for you, I was forced in that research assignment to spend a lot of time pouring through a book of alternative and homeopathic cancer treatments. And it was targeted towards people with cancer. And some of the things that they were suggesting were like you know, Tai Chi, vegan diet, rub this extract on your nostrils and stuff. 
And it seemed kind of insidious that obviously you're targeting a market of people who are desperate. But then I was thinking, like, what could be worse than just waiting? You know, at least it gives them something to be proactive. You know, like, will Tai Chi really help them? Maybe not. Is it going to hurt them? No. Is it going vegan for a little while going to help them? No. Is it going to hurt them? No. But I think that this constant news consumption is the same thing. It gives you the illusion of productivity. The comparison doesn't map exactly. <laughs> I see what you mean, though. The first part, it isn't just, will it do them any harm? No. It'll do them harm if they do that instead of going to the doctor. Right, right. Instead of getting real medicine, they'll die. If they, if they if they take that and so many of that kind of book actually say that they have the, the normal legal disclaimer at the beginning saying this is not legal advice for legal advice you should consult your doctor but then the book is all about how western medicine is corrosive and you don't need it and these reiki stones will be all that you need and yeah, there were, but, there was there were all these very very subtle things. The narratives were often constructed in such a way as to subtly communicate that this doctor is a know-it-all, right. as opposed to a as as opposed to a hyper-educated adult. That's the lever that people use now, especially in the 21st century. That is the ultimate lever, and that is, in my opinion, the DNA, the basic DNA of the polarization that everybody talks about in the political spectrum. I don't believe it has anything to do with politics. I think. I think fully 95% of the people who go out there and march one side or another in the 21st century don't know their ass from their elbow politically. They know about know-it-alls. That's the, that's the divide here. The people who are protesting are protesting their brother-in-law, who they really can't stand because he thinks he's so smart. And the, the protests that are full of the brother-in-law aren't protesting bad government policy. They're protesting that brother-in-law that they think is really dumb. It's, it's, it's an intellectual divide that I believe that the gap was opened by George W. Bush. But it's been weaponized since then, absolutely weaponized. So that I don't believe when I see these crowds of gun-toting, what do you call it, red state people pro protesting to open their states again with signs saying, set us free, let us work, no welfare work, all that sort of thing. You look at a protest like that on the news and you think you're seeing something political, and I don't believe you are. And it, for the first time that I can remember in American politics, that the us and them divide was not political. It was personal. It was, it was educational. But, uh, but even having said that, the, the other point is absolutely true. No news. The thing your father is doing, it sounds like that cascade, just an endless swing from one story to another. That has a negative effect. It rips away the lining of your arteries. It does a number on your heart. It increases your, the tension in your body enormously. And tension is the, the soil in which every ill grows. And it's pointless, completely pointless. Nothing. You could get the best source, most authoritative article in the world telling you about a financial collapse that is coming in six months because of government responses to the pandemic or whatever, there won't be anything that you can do about it at all. Nothing. No way to prepare. No way to change it. Your knowing about it won't change anything. So why do it? Why do it to yourself? And that was a hard thing for me to learn. I've learned it in, in 2020. I've learned it. But it was hard to learn because I, I come from a million years of getting four newspapers a day four editions of the same newspaper a day and four different four editions. So well, I, I come from the more knowledge you have, the better, but not in this case, not in this case at all. You, what you need, you need to know 
health guidelines. What's open and what's closed? What are the chances of infection and what are the ways to avoid it? But in terms of a gigantic financial collapse, what, what are you going to do about that? Stockpile gold? All it does is, is agitate. I, I don't follow my own advice. I watch more news than I should. But all it does is agitate. And the, the rot is on both sides. You have an American press. You have the reporters in the White House, those, those pandemic briefings. I don't know what those were. I have no idea what they are. But you have the reporters, their eyebrows way up here, and they have an apologetic tone in their voice because they know they're talking to a preschooler instead of just taking out the brass knuckles because they're afraid of being banished from the room. In either case, it does me no good to know these things. I'm not going to write a history of this period. I'm probably not going to read histories of this period. And God help me. Thank God I'm not going to write editorials about this period. I'm not involved in any way. I don't have any skin in the game. So why am I doing this to myself? We shouldn't. Nobody should. <laughs> That's my point. Nobody should. <laughs> when I, I sent you an email, I guess about a month ago, when you were, when you had written a piece for Open Letters Review about, what's it called? Some, the Trump Show? Front seat of the Trump Show? Front row of the Trump Show by Jonathan Carl, one of those people that, has, that does the thing with the eyebrows. <clears throat> right. And you said, I, I sent you an email saying there is a different tone in your voice, in your writing voice which is a little more engaging when you're angry about the subject matter. And you said you'd gotten that same feedback from a number of readers, but does that ever sort of compel you of like, let me get back into bed with the beast because it brings out the best in my prose or it brings I, out something I can't special. Imagine. I know two editors right now <laughs> for, for periodicals, one you've never heard of and one periodical that you have heard of who would, they periodically send feeler emails to me. They would take it in a heartbeat. If I did, they are two of the people who have noticed the same thing you did. This kind of ferocious rhetoric, this controlled, ferocious rhetoric that does not admit even the possibility that you're going to soft soap me. That kind of ferocious, bare knuckle rhetoric that I learned during Watergate. Every once in a while, they put out feelers and say, you know, if you could do one of these a week, I will pay you. I will pay you good money if you do one of these a week with that tone. That's the tone that I want, that kind of controlled, bare-knuckle fury. And I don't want to do it. <laughs> I don't want to do it. It would, it would require me to get involved more than I am, and I don't want to be. I should take the advice that I'm trying to give you and your father and just disassociate from all this. Just get disconnect from it. And I remember several months ago, you were talking about, you went on, a, on an impassioned digression about the peace of mind that is afforded when you have six months of your pay in savings. And I, I, that came immediately to my, I got laid off. I have two jobs. So I'm kind, it's kind of a relief because I was working like 50 hour weeks. I was a busboy at a restaurant nearby and a, a tutor at, the, at a college on the other side of town. And I got laid off from the restaurant. At first, it, at first it was just, you know, we're closed. And then I got this, I felt so bad for her. Everyone got a call from our, our grievously overworked manager telling us she was so sorry, but the restaurant just isn't opening. Is it reopening? Well, yeah, I only, I only mention that because it's a, I, I, it's a thing that a lot of Americans, especially Americans, cannot do. They cannot send money. It, it, even if they try, even if they start, the minute that money gets to a significant amount, $200, then they stop thinking about it as an exercise and they start thinking about it as a heating bill. They start, well, I have this just sitting there. You, you have to sort of train yourself not to think of that. It just set it aside completely from everything and just keep adding to it and don't think about it. Just keep adding to it. So you lost one job, but you still have one job. 
Yeah, and um, you know, I have a sponsor for the podcast. It's um, Adam and Eve, the sex toy store. I thought that was a joke. They actually do sponsor your podcast? Oh my god. Um, It's a rev share deal. So like you use a coupon code that's given on the podcast and you get 50% off and then I get 25% of that 50% off. So it's nothing lavish. But I was thinking, you know, I really did not like working 50 hours a week and just scraping by, like working 50 hours a week to be broke. And I'm thinking like, I've got the quarantine going and it doesn't seem insanely outlandish if I can devote a bunch of time to the podcast and maybe get four sponsors. Who are each giving me? Who are each giving twenty five dollars a week, there and that you would, you know, that would be a help. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, okay. It'd be better if they were giving you five thousand dollars a week each. That would be it could. better. <laughs> so it would be twenty five dollars a week isn't exactly what Joe Rogan settles for. <laughs> yeah, he's getting a uh, fifty million a year. Yeah. Um, fifty million I was... a year for weaponized incredulity. Fifty million a year for putting it out there that you are a biddable idiot. Yeah, man. Yeah, tell me more about that. I've heard that cactuses can talk. <laughs> you know anything about that? <laughs> well, actually, I'm a computer programmer. Yeah, have you heard anything about it? Can you shore up my stupid idea in any way? Because I've heard it's true. <laughs> There's gold in them, there, Hills. You should try that. <laughs> um, well, one of the ways I've come to think about those podcast money aspirations. I, I had mentioned this in the previous episode. I was talking with this woman on Hinge and we were trying to meet up and it ended up not, Hinge is a dating app and it ended up not working out. She's 38 and she works in for this very corporate commercial real estate situation. She seemed kind of miserable with her job, but she was constantly, like she would say something negative about it and then she would immediately lapse into a soliloquy of gratitude about, oh, but I'm very grateful that I have this job and this time, whatever. And she would not tell me about her job because she says, I don't want you to mistake me for my job because it's the most boring thing about me. But the way I was learning about her job is by what she was telling me about her dream future. So I started to realize everything that characterizes your dream future is what your job is preventing you from having. And your dream future is characterized by community. And she said she wanted to spend every day outdoors with a dozen dogs and she wanted to be involved with social issues. And she would, and she would say like, I, I just want to feel like I'm making a difference. Yes. Um, and so yes. she was talking about her future. When I was trying to think about my future, I was like, am I asking myself where I want to be financially, professionally, romantically, geographically? And then I started thinking like, wherever I go, I'm going to read a lot. I'm going to write a lot and I'm going to watch movies. So just think where, where, where's a place that I would like to do that? And so I started thinking, well, this is my favorite part of town, and I would like a two-bedroom apartment in my favorite part of town so I could have an office and a bedroom. And how much would that cost me a month, that lifestyle? And, and it, it's totally simplified my life to just think of it in those terms. I need to conduct a life whereby I get this much money a month, and it's fine. Um, and I remember you and I discussing and commiserating about the fact that were we to get $10 million tomorrow, our lives would not change pretty I much at all. Change. Not at all. Not at um, all. I, the, the key is to keep your wants simple, and that 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 is not just the key in order to reconcile you with a, being a wage slave. It's also to give you peace. Wants are what disturb peace, and if you keep your wants simple, you'll have peace. <laughs> there's no again, there's no price you can put on that. It's so important. No, my life wouldn't change at all. I'm, I wouldn't. What would I do? I have I have said many many times in videos something that all of my viewers find impossible to believe. I've said many times that this little book room that I'm in is too big. <laughs> People said, what? It, it looks tiny. It is still too big. I would like it to be smaller. So I'm not going to buy a house or land or anything like that. And it's not like I could get 10 dogs. That's a personal decision about a person, not about yeah. 
they're not property. I can't just add nine dogs to the one that I have now without her permission and without her liking it. But the fact that we could make your plans come true, right? Is there anything I can do to help with this podcast? Oh, you're doing it now. 18 to 25, that, that the 18 to 25 demographic that is so sought by Hollywood. I know that demographic perfectly. That demographic is the only human demographic that I completely understand from the beginning, right away. If I'm in a supermarket or a store or out on the street and I see a young man in that demographic, I know immediately how to talk to them and how to make them want to talk to me without any manipulation involved at all. For some odd reason, I get that wavelength with complete confidence. It has never happened to me once in my entire life that I started talking to someone that age and they said, you, you're just so out of it. I, you know, you're, you're talking like my dad. I don't want to talk to you. No, no young man between 18 and 25 has ever had that reaction to me. But I don't know that they're watching. Maybe it's because of the beard. This is what would attract them. This is this gives me cred. This is does it really? <laughs> it does. It does in, in that demo. You are yeah. You are, and you're also particularly sympathetic to that crowd. And so when you do Raz, bro, dude, reading, you t I know it comes not entirely from a place of scorn. There's a degree of understanding. Oh no, it, Elizabeth comes, from, it comes from a place of love. Yeah, I know what those young men are like. I know what they're like. The one thing they want more than anything is guidance. It's why charlatans like Jordan Peterson can be such megastars. All they have to do is tap into that, even a little. It was never his intention. But when he was selling out gigantic auditoriums all over the world, if you looked at the crowd waiting in line outside, they all looked the same. They, all, they were all young men. The huge, a huge percentage of his audience was young men. I caught a snippet of him on Joe Rogan where he just offhandedly mentioned that he had only had meat for the last three months. He hadn't had anything except meat. He hadn't eaten anything except meat and water. And also that he hadn't slept in 30 days. And Joe Rogan said, oh, yeah, really, man? So you like took naps? And Jordan Peterson said, no, I haven't slept at all in 30 days. That is completely impossible unless you're unless you're a medically diagnosed freak of nature that's not possible to do well that's what killed michael jackson because he was taking rohypnol <laughs> and this is this is what i've heard he was being injected with rohypnol because he was a, a horrible insomniac and rohypnol apparently prevents rem sleep the restorative sleep well quick interjection here turns out i was kind of in the ballpark of being right Michael Jackson's official cause of death was cardiac arrest, and the drug he was taking to fall asleep wasn't rohypnol, it was propofol. I looked into it, and I did find one study indicating that propofol can disrupt the normal flow of REM sleep, and that was on the National Center of Biotechnology Information, but then on that same site, there was another page exploring the significance of REM sleep, and that page pointed out that there have been several sleep studies where subjects are allowed to fall asleep, but they're woken up just as they're about to slip into REM sleep. Turns out that sustained periods of REM sleep deprivation did not cause anything like the crippling effects that one experiences from general loss of sleep. And even the question of what you might call the quote-unquote purpose of REM sleep seems to be quite an arena of speculation. But anyway, I just wanted to clear that up because while you can't hear it in the recording, Steve gave me the most cockeyed look when I told him that Michael Jackson essentially died from sleep deprivation. Yes, Michael Jackson died of cardiac arrest, and cardiac arrest is a known risk of propofol. Propofol can also disrupt REM sleep, 
but the disruption of REM sleep does not necessarily cause cardiac arrest. Nothing that, that Jordan Peterson said when he was talking to Joe Rogan made any sense anyway. You can't live for three months. If you're a human being, you can't live for three yeah. months on meat. So none of it makes any sense. It, all, the, all of it was, was obviously a bit of a raving. But the rest of the time that he was talking with Joe Rogan, he didn't seem like he was having a psychotic episode. So I don't know what to make of his, of his status now. But he's not the only one. Oh, for God's sake, there are, there are, there are a million people like that. Do you think Slavoj Žižek is one of those guys? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he is. Yeah, absolutely. You don't really need to pay much attention. You don't need to read a book to know one of these charlatans from a mile away. All you really need to do is listen to a TED Talk or their inevitable appearance on, on Dave Rubin. All you need to do is listen to a few minutes of that. And if right through the electronic screen that you're listening on, you smell manure then you have you've spotted your guy that you can tell right away but you don't even need to hear that the charlatans are the only ones who want to be in places like that otherwise you won't hear them <laughs> but but i've been a great help to men in that demographic because i take them seriously but i also make fun of them i do it at the same time and both very genuinely and it's what they want mainly because of an enormous failure of parenting in America in the last 30 years, especially fathering. That has just taken a cratering hit, just a cratering hit. For every, for every father who did the real work of being a father, there are, I don't even know, probably 30 or 40 Ned Flanders who, you know, I'm not, look, I'm not gonna tell you what to do. <laughs> I, I'm just suggesting something here. You know, I don't wanna come off as your dad. But yeah, I was going to, on the movie subject, I, I'm in the 1970s with Thousand Movie Project, and this with the 1930s is far and away the best decade. Yeah, um, 70s are often called that. They're often called the golden decade of movie making. But you don't watch in America. New. You just entirely watch old stuff. You don't watch anything. Well, the, this list ends with Life of Pi in 2013. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, and, right. But I just watched Cabaret. Um, I'd seen it in college, but I watched it again, and I loved it. Did you like that? Cabaret, no. Okay. And, and also 70s movies. No. You don't like 70s <laughs> movies? It puts me in the drastic minority. I know. I know it Where does. You... It puts me in the drastic minorities. But only because I'm not... Most people who, who have declared that the 70s are a great era of American movie making didn't live through the 70s. The movies themselves seem shabby to me and often yeah. poorly constructed in a way that, for instance, the movies in the 80s, I, when, once movies started to attract enormous amounts of corporate money, and you have enormous numbers of, of executive producers and producers coming in, and, and people who need to be satisfied with the finished product, it seems to me that in the, in the 80s, when that starts to happen, all of a sudden, you get obvious corporate sellouts. But on the other hand, you also get stuff that's that's incredibly worked over and finished and better. But you're watching great movies from the 70s. Yes. Yeah, it is a curated yeah. list. <clears throat> you're, um, it's a curated list. You're watching great movies from the 70s. So just yeah. to hear you're liking them a lot. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that, if that feeling would quite survive watching Billy Jack, for instance. I don't even I, know I don't, what that is. Better for you that you don't. <laughs> but but keep in mind all the Charles Bronson movies. You want to watch all of those? I remember schlock like that when I think of the 70s. I remember stuff that just doesn't work at all. People always remember the great 
opening credit scene from, for instance, Saturday Night Fever. They don't remember the, the elaborate dance movements that, that happened later in the movie. And they don't remember that the movie just doesn't hang together as a movie. It just doesn't hang together at all. It doesn't make any sense at all as a movie. It's just episodic. And I could say the same thing about The Godfather. <laughs> so routinely classified as one of the greatest movies ever made. I'm actually rereading the novel right now. I'm, I'm 120 pages into the novel. Oh, um, and it, bracing, I'm, I'm going to watch the two movies back to back. And the novel, I remember reading it in middle school and loving it and talking to you about this. I really enjoyed The Godfather. I really enjoyed the book of The Exorcist. Um, but I'm reading the novel and I'm seeing it is a better movie. than a, That story lends well to a cinematic realization <laughs> than a literary one. No, I wouldn't say it's awful. awful because it's also... Literary. Well, also earlier, well, yeah, earlier in 2020, I read W.R. Burnett's Little Caesar for the first time, and it was delightful. And I feel a lot of the stiffness of Little Caesar is in this. The rigid characters declaring their emotions. Yeah, in the book, they declare their emotions, but they don't have those emotions. They just declare them. They don't act in any way. (sighs) Some of that carries over the movie, but not a lot. The movie, and same thing. 10 times over with the exorcist oh my god they are it's interesting how sanitized they are there was so much static and tripping over one another for about a minute or so i I don't want to subject you to it but steve and i somehow got from here to the topic of this um, this show's sponsor adam and eve and how adult content is being a little more accepted by the culture year by year public and Pornhub as well um, I don't know if you saw that Pornhub had that publicity stunt of plowing people's roads and then the plow set on the front Pornhub just plowed your town yeah. during the winter um, also at yeah. the end of each year those they, sorts of they, things encourage me yeah and they present a map of the United States and they carve out the regions to and then they list what is the most searched porn in that region and it shows invariably in the deep south it's interracial and and then incest is is one of the most popular, but it seems it seems to suggest that the porn that's being consumed reflects something about the psyche of that region. Just like the thing you mentioned about uh, your your corporate friend's dreams, our daydreams about the future are perfect. It's possible to reverse engineer almost everything about you from the things you dream about in the future, from the things that you that you hope for in the future. It's possible to reverse engineer almost everything about you from that. Same thing, it's possible to tell a lot about you from your porn, <laughs> from porn that you prefer. But I like I like that very much. I like that when companies like that try that kind of thing. I'd much rather have that than the sanctimony of Gillette. Wait, that just reminded me. I forgot, what was the nature of that very famous Gillette ad from a couple years ago? Boys will be boys. Oh, yeah, stop. Okay. Boys will be boys. The, the, the famous, the infamous scene that had two grade school boys pounding the crap out of each other on the ground just with closed fists just pounding on each other while a 40 mile long row all in a row of men at barbecues saying boys will be boys boys will be boys boys will be boys all reciting in unison and there isn't there isn't a single father of a great a primary a grade school boy there isn't a single father of a grade school boy anywhere in the country not one who would have stood there while their kid was being pounded on 
at a barbecue. Not one. It was a complete fantasy of social justice warrior conceptions of toxic masculinity. It wasn't real toxic masculinity. You've seen real toxic masculinity, so have I. I'm not denying that it exists, but that in that commercial, there isn't a single father anywhere in the world who recognizes that as anything like reality. And men accounted for 99% of Gillette's target audience. And what happened <laughs> that, that fiscal year? What happened? Gillette posted $100 million in lost sales. I think we're up to a billion. Really? I didn't they know that. They cratered their company's finances, cratered them, massive layoffs, whole plants closed down because they sent a direct, stinky middle finger F you to the people that buy their product. Well, so what do you make of the fact that Viagra, apparently, I, I thought I read that their sales went up when they started shifting to those ads where it's it's a woman not scantily clad. I think she's in a nightgown or something. And she's laying uh, prone on a bed with her with her chin on her palm talking about, you know, there's nothing wrong with erectile dysfunction. And right. that apparently improved sales over the commercials oh, yes. where it was a salt and pepper bearded man on a beach right. lighting a campfire. Right. Exactly, it did. Because it speaks directly to your audience. Who are the people who want this? Some people want it for vanity reasons, but most men want it because they need a little help. And most of the women in their lives know they need a little help. In most cases, in a huge number of cases, it's the woman saying to the man, you know, there's nothing wrong with this. And that, that commercial, that ad campaign spoke directly to reality. Niagara is usually a couple decision. It's usually a decision mm. made by couples. Whereas the Gillette commercial was, we think you're a monster. Here's our product. <laughs> well, what, what, what kind of a... You can't watch that commercial and come away with anything other than this gender is entirely monsters. They're all monsters. Well, it's the gender watching that commercial, and they're the one buying the product, and they have stopped. They have just plain stopped. Jeanette, Gillette had to apologize and fire everybody involved and get a whole new creative team. And we'll, be, we'll see if they can claw their way back out of that. But <laughs> I would much rather have Pornhub simply acknowledging the fact that every American watches porn, that every adult American watches porn of some kind or another, with very few exceptions. <laughs> and Pornhub knows that. They know that better than anybody. <laughs> yeah. they, they, know, they know where the bodies are buried. They know that more than anybody. And they're perfectly happy to make a nice, refreshing ad campaign, taking the, the stigma off it or trying to. I think it's... Um, well, yeah, the 17th... We moved right back to pleasing your sponsor. <laughs> we didn't even try. Just, I'm sure they'll appreciate it. Drawn like moths. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if you've seen I make those fake cooking show videos on Instagram, Garlic Incest. And I started putting them on Pornhub. And when I made an account on Pornhub as a contributing video, whatever, a person contributing content the stuff that they ask you for your profile is like, what's your favorite book? A bunch of weird things. So I'm typing stuff in and I put, my favorite book is, because it's a pseudo cooking show, I put The Art of French Cooking by, or Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Julia Child. And a red flash, I thought my computer crashed or I got a virus, a red flash appeared on my screen. It erased everything I had written and it said, you have used a word that is not allowed on Pornhub.com. Child. Child. <sighs> 
Oh my god. Oh that's right. Yeah. Oh my. And I was oh, I, I panicked. I panicked. Like I obviously I didn't put I just put the art of French cooking and I didn't put Julia Child, but I was panicking. I was like, is my computer flagged now? Because <laughs> I wrote the word child on Pornhub. Oh my, you know it is. You know, somewhere somebody Probably. thought that was a search. Oh Probably. My. And um and then there was another one because the show is called Garlic Incest, I tried putting that in the in the title. Oh no. <laughs> you can't put the word incest. Do that either. <laughs> um and then I was like, but this is like the most popular genre of porn, and then you realize all the videos are stepmom and stepson. Stepsister mm-hmm. needs help fastening her bra uh, or zipping yeah. up her dress. Yes. They never use no, the you, word. You take my word for it. You make one innocent mistake on Pornhub. Just type in Beagle. I don't know why. <laughs> I never let you forget it. I tell you. Let's <laughs> But no, you're right. It, it's uh, when you go away from places that are watching, when you go away from places that can ban you, when you go into the, the absolute tall grass of the porn world, straight and gay or anything in between, siblings, not step siblings, but siblings are huge. Huge. Really? Well, I don't know what that says about Americans. I, I don't think I want to know. That's kind is of... that decidedly Western? I don't know. And it could be that in this case, it speaks to the the, the desire to explore the forbidden. I have to believe that I want. To, I'm going. The only way that I'm going to make peace with myself is to believe that that does not reflect American reality. I would really hope that doesn't reflect American reality. <laughs> but but. What other? You said you were watching movies from the seventies. What other? I haven't. I haven't quite kept up. What other seventies movies? Are well, I'm not writing list? about them yet, so I, I haven't really been broadcasting. I have a little list. I have a list on my wall. Um, I watched and fell in love with Fellini's Amarcord. Have you seen that? Yeah. I, just a portrait of life in the thirties in Italy. I thought it was really funny. No plot or anything. I just thought it was great. Um, Cabaret, Enter the Dragon. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, Chinatown, The Wicker Man. I loved The Wicker Man. And was surp- is, did you, have you seen it? Is Star Wars on your list? Yes, it is. It is. Okay. Yeah. Now, are you going to go out of your way to uh, go on eBay or something and get a, a production that does not have the new special effects? Oh, that's a good question. I didn't even thought about that. Those become collectible, haven't they? Yeah, I, I do. Lucas, I do have when it. He owned the product. He wanted to get rid of those. Yeah. He said those don't exist. So you, I, I think a, a VHS tape with those special without those special effects would probably be pricey. I do still have one, and it, it's distinct do you because really? it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a black VHS tape. But that that lip on the VHS tape that covers the film, it's brown for some reason with that first Star Wars thing, and I have that in storage. Um, I hadn't thought about that. I don't know what it's like on Disney Plus because George Lucas doesn't have say over that anymore. I don't think. Yeah, I haven't checked. I can't. And there was anybody is showing the originals. Well, did you see that documentary, The People versus George Lucas? Yes. So that showed that there are some people who have put it online. Um, And I've had to go some sketchy places to see some of these movies. There was an experimental film from the 60s called Report, which was kind of terrifying. It's 16 minutes long, and it's about the Kennedy assassination. But the thing is, I've always... Everything I've learned about the Kennedy assassination obviously has been in retrospect, knowing what it is and what happened. But this is just a compilation of news, of TV footage and radio news of confused reporters scrambling around, panicking, hyperventilating. We think the president has been shot. We think the first lady is dead. All the misinformation, the confusion, 
and it just yeah. it raises your blood pressure listening to it. I know. I'm familiar with it. Um, another history thing that you have turned me on to, I've been afraid to read it because I have this love-hate relationship with 9-11 history. Um, I'm fascinated, but it really freaks me out. Yeah. Um, that book, what is it, 118 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. But the the thing... The the, my, the the game changer, the thing that, that has filled the, the groundwater when it comes to 9-11 is not a book. It's a, it's a free documentary, Loose Change. Oh, yeah. Online. That That is not, not the later ones. You should just watch the first one. Find, find the earliest one and watch it. You actually, if you want to understand a lot, you you have to watch it. it it doesn't take long to do and then you at least will know the seedbed of an enormous amount of conspiratorial thinking about 9-11 that that is where most of it began most of the people 9-11 i think is is unique or at least the first widespread conspiracy theory in america that was not based on books and uh loose change the first edition of loose change does exactly what report does it pulls together the most the report Reporters and, and and specialists in the field at their most confused in the first 48 hours when they had no idea what was going on and they were they had no idea what they were seeing they'd never seen anything like it before and they just build on that instead of just looking a month later you won't get the stuff that came a month later from them you have to figure that out on your own and millions of Americans at the time didn't bother. To figure it out on their own they just took what they got from that because uh, it's very slickly right. made and it has made alex jones a mint just a mint from just ancillary rights to that thing just <laughs> it, it, it took a made 9-11 conspiracy theories just in general took a major body blow uh when another guy was elected <laughs> when, when president obama was elected then all of a sudden, your conspiracy theories about 9-11 being an inside job have to expand to include the mortal elective enemy of the guy you were saying was in charge. All of a sudden, you have to say that his enemy, the guy who didn't who beat him in an election, is perfectly happy to further this conspiracy to keep the lid on it. You, you, it, you, it couldn't survive. The 9-11 conspiracy theories couldn't survive Dick Cheney leaving office. And when he did, all of a sudden, those speaking gigs just disappeared <laughs> for, mm. for all of the people who were the guys, the two, the three uh, college age doofuses who made loose change could could name their feet at hotbed reactionary places all over the country. They could name their feet. Uh, they might have believed it when they made the first edition. By the time they, was that they a cynical made, production? Do you think they believed it? Of loose change. By the time they were made, even the second one, they had to know that they were peddling misinformation. But it was a great gig. <laughs> and you, you, yeah. if you call up, if, if YouTube hasn't suppressed these videos, you can call up videos of them doing slideshows and then taking questions from the audience, and you can tell uh, that they were never going to get a gig like this again. <laughs> these guys don't know anything. They don't, they don't think at all. So it, by the second edition of Loose Change, or the third or the fourth, it wouldn't have mattered that they knew it was false. They would just have kept doing it anyway. They wouldn't have walked away from it. Even if they're being directly contradicted by the experts they quote in the first edition. And even if their speaking gigs at colleges aren't still on YouTube, because YouTube censors quite a bit, censors enormously, uh, they had an appearance on uh, 
I think it was uh, Democracy Now, where they were actually on the, the panel was actually them and the guys from Popular Mechanics who refuted all their points. They were all mm -hmm. together at the same table, and that won't be surprising. Can't suppress Amy Walters. <laughs> Can't do that. <laughs> so that'll. Yeah, they were eviscerated. Yeah, and at one point, one of the guys from one of the the debunking debunkers, they just one of the eviscerated? guys from Popular Mechanics, looked at them and said, "These are people that we're talking about. You do know that, right? These are dead people that we're talking about. The brothers and sisters and husbands and fathers of living, grieving people. You know that that's what you're talking about here, right? When you're saying that nobody died, that's what you're doing." And it didn't. It just bounced right off these guys. They they didn't care at all. They spent the whole interview just snickering. You can hear them snickering on the mic. Whenever anything is said, there before they talk is to snicker. It doesn't come off well at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> uh, even though I'm not. Well, speaking of conspiracy theories that stem from video. Um... Do you yeah. see those Navy videos of the, they're not called UFOs anymore. It's unidentified aerial something. You know, it's, it's very clearly a flying mechanical object. And that's all that a UFO is. A UFO is an unidentified flying object, a flying object that experts cannot identify. That's all that it is. But when I was watching the footage, my first thought was drone. This is some kind of drone. It's moving like a drone, rotating like a drone. But even if I'm wrong, I'm not a military hardware expert, so I could be wrong. Even if I'm wrong and it's not a drone, I can tell you one thing it's definitely not, and that's an interstellar spaceship. <laughs> it is definitely not an interstellar spaceship. My main theory, my main theory on what it is, can be colloquially summed up in a way that's going to invoke a whole nother conspiracy theory. But I think you'll know what I mean. I think if you want to explain objects that we've all seen in film footage, you should look, instead of looking at Andromeda, you should look at Israel. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is not meant to be an invitation to a whole nother conspiracy theory. It's what you want to do is look at a very well-funded military program that doesn't want you to know what it's doing. And, and Israel has a long, a long history of being that kind of uh, well-funded entity, but there are plenty of others. There are plenty of others that are the same way. That's what it is. It's, it's, an aerial drone or, or spy an automated spy camera or something like that that some country has put up in the air that it doesn't want to identify it could easily be American. Could easily be American. Having the Pentagon declassify a few a few minutes of film footage and say here it is is a classic uh, black ops move. That is the, that's from the playbook in the sixties is to do that and have the whole country start to debate what this is and it becomes the natural assumption the thing that everybody starts with that it can't be the dod or they wouldn't have started conversation in the first place of course that is what they would do yeah it's it's not someone coming from another planet okay <laughs> it's not someone doing that that would require a whole generation and a whole planet to do in order to make that happen you would need a whole generation of specialists and a whole planet in terms of finance and logistical support. And a whole plant full and resources don't launch something so that it can hide around and stick probes up cows. <laughs> that's not what happens. That's not that's not how we would do it. And it's not how you can do it. By the time you get to your target world, you're in desperate need of pretty much everything. And there's no way to avoid that. There's no way to avoid that being true 
if you are traveling at some relativistic speeds and you can't travel at any other kind of speed. So, so, so it's definitely not that. <laughs> it's fun to watch the speculation, but I hate, I hate to burst that bubble. But it's military hardware that somebody just doesn't want to identify. Most likely suspect in the world is America. That would be my guess. My guess would be that this is American hardware. And my guess would be that the provenance of this actual film is non-American or is amateur and not military. And that the military is just getting out ahead of it. It's on film. We live in the age of the internet. These, this footage is out there already. We should just get out ahead of it. We should own it.